Hello, Buildings on Air podcast listeners. This is your host, Kiefer Dunn. So there's no live Buildings on Air this month on WLPN Lumpen Radio. Um, But if you follow the show on Twitter, um, you'll see that I promised you a special audio treat for you podcast listeners. Um, And without further ado, here it is uh, by way of introduction. Um, One of the reasons why we didn't have the live show is because several of us were um, uh, Anne and Craig and myself, the regular uh, Buildings on Air contingent, um, was away in Venice. Um, Anne, uh, one of the co-curators of the U.S. Pavilion, um, and uh, I was there speaking on an architectural lobby panel, um, and that's what you'll hear. We have some audio recording of the architectural lobby panel um, that was at the Dimensions of Citizenship U.S. Pavilion, um, talking about immigration and architecture. Uh, I think there's lots of good stuff. It was a lot of uh, fun conversation um, and really, really enlightening and powerful, powerful stuff. Um, so I hope you enjoy it. Um, the audio is uh, it was recorded outside. The audio is uh, uh, maybe less pristine than what you're used to um, from the show, uh, but I did the best I could with audio production. Um, Big shout out to Chelsea Kilburn for recording the show in the first place. I appreciate it. Thanks, Chelsea. All right, without further ado, here you go. Buildings on Air featuring uh, the Architecture Lobby panel at the Dimensions of Citizenship U.S. Pavilion. Work, including construction work, 
So the issue of immigration is related to construction, is related to work that architects do and sympathies that we have within all the realms and all the players um, in the built environment. Um, so the panel is made up of lobby members and other um, activists who are interested in the relationship of immigration to labor. Um, and some of them have concentrated on the issue of immigration in relationship to the border wall, particularly the southern border wall. And some of us have been interested in the relationship between immigration and construction. Um, so those will make up the two different panels that you will see today. Um, the, uh, let me just give you some facts around um, immigration um, and uh, construction. Today, immigrants make up 17% of the U.S. labor force, and nearly 14% of those who we depend on are undocumented. Because baby boomers are retiring and U.S. birth rates are falling, without immigration, the workforce is shrinking dramatically, and we are becoming ever more dependent on immigrants. All studies, whether arguing that immigrant labor raises or lowers wages, agree that immigrants' contribution to the GDP is always positive. Immigrant labor accounts for 23% of the total construction force in the U.S. Nearly 15% of those working in construction in the U.S. are <coughs> undocumented, and nearly every grade depends on those undocumented workers. Since Trump's presidency began, arrests of undocumented workers have jumped up 36% to 400 a day. At the same time, illegal cross-border migration is at its lowest point on record. Variations of this panel that you're going to be seeing today have already presented in two different venues, one in San Francisco a week ago, and one two days ago at the Palazzo Whitman. At these events, we've described our positions to each other and to our audiences. And we're using this third occasion to move beyond those descriptions to probe deeper into the ideologies that lie behind our positions and behind our activism. Um, so in some way, you can see that activism, or we're hoping to see that activism itself is not a unified activity. And our discussions today allows us, in front of you, to debate more thoroughly the visions that motivate our work. Specifically, we have asked each panelist to consider whether they are addressing the world as it is or the world that we want it to be, addressing the, re the realities of our current conditions or setting the stage for an ideal, just, and humane future. We have set this discussion up again as two sets of dialogue, one set amongst the panelists who concentrated on the border wall and immigration, the second one, uh, construction, um, immigration and the production of architecture. Within each of these, then, we're going to be talking about the nature of activism and the ideologies that lie behind them. So let me introduce the panelists. I'm going to introduce the, the first panelist, which is, again, the um, immigration relationship to, to border walls. Um, James Hurd, um, who is co-founder of and, and architect at UXO in California and steward of the LA chapter of the architecture lobby. Dexter Walcott, an architectural worker living in LA and the coordinator of the lobby's Not Our Wall campaign. Um, and together they produced the Not Our Wall book, which I'm hoping somebody can raise up in the show. Maybe we don't 
group. I'm going to ask everyone to say their name before um, they say just a couple words about their work and what they're interested in. Um, and the way that the panel is going to go, we're going to ask each person to say their name, say a little bit about their work, and then we're going to have a, a sort of free-for-all conversation about that. And if you have anyone in the audience has a super, super burning issue, raise your hand and I may call on you. Okay? All right, so. Hi, I'm uh, Nathan Friedman. And much, much of my work on the US-Mexico border deals with the 19th century constitution um, of the line of the border itself. As Peggy mentioned, I'm currently looking at a very specific moment in 2007 uh, in which a section of the US-Mexico border fence after the 2006 Secure Fence Act uh, was initiated by the Bush administration was found to have been constructed partially with Chinese steel. And the reaction um, to this sort of discovery is what's been so interesting in that the Congressional Steel Lobby, which is a bipartisan uh, coalition in Washington, 
reacted to this discovery through the juxtaposition of two images, one being sort of surplus flooding of Chinese steel into U.S. markets, and the other um, a sort of displaced uh, rural American industrial worker. So for me, what's so interesting is that um, in the face of global integration, transnational flows of capital, uh, material populations, you also have the U.S. from the Bush administration onwards, obviously till today, trying to establish and assert um, a very specific type of uh, national identity that is quite crude. So in terms of the sort of short-term versus long-term aims and goals that I'm interested in, first and foremost in terms of the short-term, for me it's critical to sort of debunk uh, the myth of the binary us versus them, United States versus Mexico, because it is truly um, a binational uh, population, origin story, history, ecologies. I think um, the Fauna Foreman and Teddy Cruz uh, display here at the US Pavilion speaks um, very well to that. And secondly, in the long term, I think it is also critical that uh, we work for a solution that is not unilateral, that is not top-down, that is not imposed from the United States onto Mexico, but is something that is much more um, by, uh, bi-national, collaborative, and even though this might sound naive or, um, yes, perhaps idealistic, there are very clear historic precedent for that. Um, my name is Sara gonzalez Lara, and I'm an assistant professor um, at the School of Architecture of New Mexico. Um, I'm also a partner at Idol Architects, a small architecture firm that operates between Albuquerque and Houston. And um, during the last two years, I've been teaching a studio um, in Albuquerque that deals with borders, with um, how architects can have a say on, on this issue, etc. Um, I think that the, what makes the studio a little bit more unique is the composition of the students where the majority of them um, are ori originally either from Mexico or, or their parents uh, came from Mexico. Um, and, and, and in this, we've been, we've been talking a lot about how can we as architects have a say on this and, and, and how can we be involved um, with the border, um, what is our agency in this issue. What I've been exploring quite a lot is that um, I think that remaining neutral can, can be an option, and, and when doing this, I think that the side of the oppressor is chosen. Um, and, and in that regards, I think that um, I've been talking a lot with the students about what, what the agency of architects is, and what I think that it is a problem is that when, when architects think that their agency is just to make the proposed wall more beautiful instead of uh, challenging the prompt itself. So the work that I've been doing deals with with all these issues. My name is Dexter Walcott. I'm an architectural worker based in Los Angeles um, and the campaign coordinator for the Architecture Lobby's Not Our Wall campaign. Um, during the day to make a living, I work doing public architecture in, the, in Southern California, schools and libraries is primarily what the firm I work for does. Um, as an architectural worker, I organize other architects to oppose the oppressive immigration enforcement policies of the Department of Homeland Security, and we do that as the architectural lobby through the Not Our Wall campaign. Um, and as an architectural worker, and uh, in addition to these things, as an architectural worker, I should, I should participate in the long-standing grassroots organizations working to build robust institutions for human rights and social welfare. I do not work on defense or immigration enforcement projects, including working for the companies and their executives that profit from the security industrial complex. I do, and I refuse to do these because of immigration policy and rhetoric 
built around national security has no better design and should be abolished. So my name is Cesar Lopez. Um, I'm here today um, mainly with a provocation that I've written very shortly. Um, the U.S.-Mexico border is will represent one of the most critical and defining regions of North America. Whether a border wall that acts as a support structure for unilateral border policies will produce economic and social and environmental issues that will challenge the equilibrium in which the borderland communities have come to rely on. It is my belief that we should participate in both practice and debate uh, to help steer the, the construction of the border wall and will provide op that will provide opportunities for exchange while affirming those who live on both sides and in between. Rather than focus on a border wall on the U.S.-Mexico border that reflects our current politics, we should receive, we should conceive of a border that enables new modes of subjectivity outside the strict natural and ethnic affiliations. I'm uh, James Hurd. As Peggy mentioned, I'm an architect at UXO. Uh, I do residential architecture, and I've worked uh, on the border wall prototypes, or researched the border wall prototypes with the Not Our Wall campaign with the architecture lobby. I think that the border wall needs to be understood as an artifact of capitalism that has an ultimate goal of maintaining a vulnerable class to exploit. Um, and I think as architects, we're in a difficult situation because infrastructure as a built object is under our purview professionally as architects, but we really lack the power to structurally affect its development in any way. And so I think that we have an immediate concern, which is the communities that are being affected by this border infrastructure, and we, we have an obligation to alleviate the harm that, that's, uh, that is done to them. Uh, but there's also a long-term goal of organizing the profession to seize power so that we can prevent infrastructure projects, whether it's the border wall or future infrastructure projects that are harmful from occurring. Uh, for those of you who live and work at the border, um, would you like to comment on the implications it's had for the people who live on the border, as opposed to those who are looking at it perhaps from afar? Well, maybe something that it's worth mentioning is that the wall now um, is having all these media attentions, but there's already a fence that is existing, and there's already a separation, a physical and heavy militarized separation between the U.S. and Mexico. Um, so I think that after after all these plans and, and, and after we've been hearing how Trump wants to build this wall, I think that maybe we haven't seen physical or, or, or actual effects. I think that right now it's more um, fear and, and, and not understanding what's going to happen. And I think that what it is also a little bit um, unique about New Mexico is that we have a lot of dreamers. And dreamers um, are those uh, the sons and daughters from uh, illegal immigrants who come to the States and who were, were allowed to, to study and work in the States. And now Trump wants to um, to, to demolish, to, to, to avoid or to stop uh, allowing them to be uh, legally in the states. So I think that for them, maybe it's 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 been more problematic because they, they don't quite know um, how all these uh, new rules are going to affect them. So I think that uh, maybe the the things that we can't see or the walls that we can't see are the ones that are having a bigger impact as of now. Um, 
I think it's incredibly critical that when we think about immigrants um, that in this debate we mostly become familiar with the long-term immigrant, right? Everybody knows the immigrant story that we talk about where someone comes to this country for a long period of time in search of a permanent settlement, uh, largely looking to, uh, to you know, settle new roots, usually in, in search of a more economic opportunity, etc. Um, I actually grew up on the El Paso uh, Ciudad Juarez border in uh, U.S. and Mexico. Uh, I was uh, what you might consider to be born on vacation. Um, and so, I, in my experience, it's interesting because we really have to consider the short-term uh, migrants. Uh, the migrant that uses that border every single day and relies on it every single day. You know, at 5 a.m., um, on both sides of the border, whether you're in um, El Paso, Texas, or Juarez, Mexico, um, you're gonna see uh, a crowd of people at 5 a.m. waiting across the border. These people are waiting to go to school, they're waiting to go to work, they're waiting to go to, um, you know, access affordable healthcare, they're waiting to, you know, uh, go home in many cases. You're gonna see this exact same crowd in the evening waiting to go home. And what's critical for us to remember is that these people are not just laborers, they're doctors, they're lawyers, they're students, they're teachers, etc. So it's really important that when we talk about border wall that we consider the daily traffic. We consider the fact that people rely on that wall to have a sense of unfettered access. Um, and that's the sort of equilibrium that relies on because to be honest, there's precarity found on both sides of the border today. Uh, today we've heard political rhetoric that they're coming here to find better opportunity. The reality is that um, in living on the borderland, you find precarity on both sides. Often you're gonna find someone who works in El Paso where the wage is a little higher, and they're gonna buy their groceries or they're gonna live in Juarez where the dollar currency goes a little further than the peso, right? So it's really important that you know you consider that you know it's not just you know Mexicans crossing to US and that's what they rely on, it's also Americans crossing to Mexico and that's what they rely on. Yeah, and, and those that literally live between. I, I was um, in Columbus, New Mexico uh, in 2012, speaking to a local historian there. He's, um, they have a very small historical society that's basically one room, but they have a series of fascinating artifacts, like the, they said it's the hand of Pancho Villa that they, they hold there, because it's the site where Pancho Villa came in, um, and he, he stormed the troops, the U.S. troops, and killed 16 people, starting that there was a, a return attack from the Wilson administration. They still celebrate this history. But anyway, the, the head of the historical society was telling me, yes, I was born in Puerto Colomas on the other side, and there had been the police chief and the fire chief, <coughs> and I was once married to the mayor, and now I'm the historian here. You know, so they really, is, it's all one uni unified community. To be honest, that's where it started. Um, it, you know, before there was a border, uh, before there was a border. Well, actually, you know, to be honest with you, in Mexico, U.S., there was always a border, and there always will be a border. The difference is us finding a way to configure that border as a way to propagate exchange on either side. Uh, but the reality is that you know, it's really you know, a border wall. Yes, it's a very dangerous idea. The unilateral border policies that would follow that would that that's border wall to act as a support structure for that's a, dangerous, that's a dangerous point. You're absolutely right. There are people that already circumvent the border in every which way, you know, whether it's exchange of goods, trade, 
you know, working on one and spending your social security on the other side, you know, it, that is exactly, I mean, spot on. Um, you know, I, I think that um, a lot of the rhetoric around the border sort of treats it as an inevitability, like you mentioned, that it will always be there, but I don't know, maybe today we can sort of challenge that and conceive of a future where the border is eradicated or some ways that we could work to get there. I mean, you know, there's obviously the physical uh, the physical object and there are ways that we can protest that. And, uh, but then I think that maybe we can challenge the political will for there to, to be a border. I, I think it's also important in this conversation um, to also remember that the border wall is just this frontline face and the most popular piece of rhetoric right now of a vast immigration enforcement infrastructure in the United States. There's a 100-mile enforcement zone on the inside of that on all the borders of the United States where your civil rights are suspended. The Fourth Amendment of illegal search and seizure does not apply to you if you're speaking Spanish or if you look suspicious of color is what they mean. And um, additionally, there's a lot of infrastructure and architecture that is built to support the companies that make a lot of money off of doing this immigration enforcement. Um, companies that we might not think of, like Boeing or North of Grumman. There's very large architecture firms in the United States. For instance, the one that's grossed the most money out of any other architecture firm over the last five years brags on its website that 70% of defense and aerospace companies come to them to build their architecture. Those are arms manufacturers. Those are people selling bombs and guns. And that's the rest of this immigration enforcement that takes place beyond the wall. That the wall, at least in contemporary rhetoric right now, is like is the face for it. And so I would like to be able to design trend, um, structures for transnationalism in, in the future, but I think in like the immediate conditions that are taking place, especially considering immigration and customs enforcement ICE on the inside of the country, I don't know if I can do that. Going back to your comment of, of borders, and I think that the problem is not having a border because in the end we need we need separation the same way that um, we are part of the county and part of the city and part of the country. and And the U.S. has two borders. One of them doesn't uh, isn't a problem nowadays. Um, so I think that the the border, even if it's something that it's it's not natural, it's something imaginary and all that. I think that it's it's not a problem per se. The problem is how it is articulated and how uh, militarized it is and, and, and with how much, uh, also with, with all the hate that, that nowadays people talk about, about the wall and wanting to build this wall and all this, when, when as I said, the fence is already there. Um, so I think that that's, that's to me what is the biggest um, problem with, with this border. I'd like you all to comment on the fact that um, there, there's this sort of mosh pit of ideas uh, between immigration policy and the wall. It all gets mushed together, put together. And I, I think it's really interesting that the object, the thing that comes into people's minds as opposed to the complexities of immigration policy is the, a physical structure. So it all comes back to <coughs> architecture at some point in time, which is actually kind of interesting that architecture becomes the symbol of the way that you know, people might think of the White House as being the symbol of the United States, particularly, but that, that is what 
some people believe to be the symbol. And I'd like you to all comment on the idea of, of the form of architecture actually becoming the symbol for political policy <coughs> and where that might have other implications as well. Well, it's a tough one. Specifically because I think it's it's actually difficult to actually for in my case call the, the border wall a piece of architecture. For me it's a piece of militarized infrastructure. Um, and but I do think that that's increasingly over the years become a product of design, which is something that I've been interested in from its origins in nineteen seventeen during the Mexican Revolution, perhaps it was just a few pieces of barbed wire with perhaps a more psychological effect, and today it still has a tremendous, perhaps more psychological effect than immediate physical effect. Um, to through uh, landing maps from Vietnam being made purpose uh, to the 2006 Secure Fence Act when it actually becomes designed today, up until today. Um, so obviously these artifacts, which are the products of uh, policy um, and politics, have a lot of meaning. They're imbued with a lot of symbolism. And of course there are those who argue that it is really not about, um, it's not an effective barrier to immigration or or drug trafficking, or any of these uh, major issues that are kind of headline, but it's purely, uh, yes, as uh, Wendy Brown said, states uh, a monument to the waning nation state. So, um, it's all of those things. Um, what I think is that, I mean, it is true that, um, that in this world, architecture or, or a build, um, a built element is, is what it what it will be the ultimate goal or the ultimate uh, you know, the, the ultimate goal of this idea. But but I think that maybe it's not it's not any different to any to any other buildings, right? Where where there are all these things on the back that we don't see, that maybe we just see the finalized building, but we don't see where the money is coming from, where the workers are coming from, etc. So I think that maybe this is a very extreme case where we are analyzing all these things, but but somehow I think that maybe even every single building could also have somewhat of the same elements of politics, urbanism, and all these things involved. Um, and what I think that is in the end, architects, we are maybe the ones who kind of design it and, and have a say on, on the way it's looking and, 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 and it's like the visual aspect of it. Um, and, and that's something that I've been talking a lot with the students. And the first time that I taught this studio, um, for instance, it was just us. But this year that I started again, I've been inviting people from other colleges, uh, from politics, from, to also understand what, what, what the issue is from their stand, and understanding that I mean, it's not just the problem of architects. Um, and to me, or, or one of the things that we've been talking a lot about is that we wish that we were invited to the table earlier on rather than just, us, okay, here's what you have to do. Um, and I think that that would solve a lot of the problems. I think it's important what you're saying about coming to the table and that this has been like a long-standing fight, right? The fight, the fight for immigrant justice in the United States. And so I think that in a way we should we should show up and listen for a while and sort of, because I've, I've spent a lot of time so far up here saying what we don't do, but then there are really good things that we can do that like disengage from this work for institutions by participating and listening to them and also building structures that are dedicated to the preservation of human rights and are dedicated to the idea of improving people's social welfare and that aren't pinned on the idea of national origin. It's, 
I'm, I'm also going to be back on the coming to the table a lot earlier because it's interesting to note that our architects are typically the ones that come to the table very last, right? And it has, I mean, it has something to do with the fact that, um, you know, a lot of architects haven't taken a position on this until fairly recently, until it became a hot topic, right? And once it did, suddenly, um, and, you know, thankfully a lot of architects have taken a position, but beyond just taking a position, I think it's incredibly dangerous not to get involved. You know, I, I understand the I understand the knee-jerk reaction of saying that I'm not going to participate in the construction of a border wall. Perhaps that's dangerous as well. Perhaps it needs other voices. Perhaps it needs more diverse uh, diverse voices uh, involved in the debate of what is a border wall and how should that be constructed. Um, I think it's I, I think it's important to know that right now it's 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 dangerous for architects just to simply not get involved in something like that. And because you know, grow you know again growing up on the border, I knew that there's it is a difference between policy and built structure, right? And the built structure is physical. You know the ways and means that built structure is going to be constructed, the labor that's going to go into it, and what it's going to do, what it's going to act as a barrier once it's up, whether it is a real barrier or not. Um, whether it's effective or not, it's a symbolic barrier. Policies are very abstract, and they don't affect everyone, and people have a very difficult time caring if it does not directly affect them. Uh, so in terms of it being an architectural question, I think it's one that every architect, whether involved or not, somehow needs to be able to answer through one medium or another. Yeah, I'll also echo the point of architects being involved in the wall, I mean, I think it's important uh, from the perspective of oversight that having somebody there to see what's going on is important. Um, and maybe I'll expound a little on my point in my original proposition about architects uh, having the power to prevent infrastructure like this from occurring. In the United States, infrastructure projects don't require the oversight of an architect. So you can be part of it but at the end of the day, a contractor, civil, or a civil engineer can stamp the drawings and the wall will be built regardless of the architect's concerns or its effects. And so I think that, yeah, obviously architects should be around to see what's going on, but ideally we reach a point where they can see what's going on and then actually have an effect on whether that, uh, whether it's built or not. But I think it's also important to discuss the reality of these things that, yes, often we come to the table very late or on our own terms or through self-organized conversations such as this, right? And that these walls, this infrastructure, are developed by people like Boeing, by Lockheed Martin, by Sandia Laboratories, directly commissioned by the Homeland, like Department of Homeland Security, right? So I think it's only through this process of lobbying, pushing, and having very public, public conversations no way that this problem, I think this is a start, but it's certainly not the end, right? Pushing that um, is, act, is absolutely essential because then otherwise, how do we get involved? We are not. We are not important to them, right? So it's about how do we assert our knowledge and, uh, and our agency in this very complex, uh, politically driven Department of Homeland Security issue. Cool. Uh, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Why, why uh, the architectural lobby talks about architectural workers and why I'm interested in that is that it 
by doing an analysis of yourself and work in relation in relation to labor, it exposes the possibility of refusal. And though we might not be directly, I totally agree, right? Like directly involved and total Johnny come lately's, right? Like 100%. But the point is that a collective refusal and organizing for a collective refusal is radically different than my own individual morals that I might have developed very late in coming to the table, right? But organizing people together to say, you know what, we're not going to do any of these things, these nice airline terminals for Boeing, in addition to not building it with the infrastructure of the wall. And that working together with other workers and that refusal is really powerful and has built great societal change in the 20th century. So I think that's the potential of the architecture lobby by, by using a worker type analysis of what we do. I think that's actually incredibly critical. Um, what you're describing is exactly the kind of uh, collective power that we could all potentially have because sometimes there's nothing collective about architects, you know, like in terms of like getting together under one ideology or at least an idea and just like pushing forward with it, right? And that's that's what I kind of really like about what uh, the architecture lobby has done um, and responsible for the wall is is just at least um, collecting around an idea and a, and a response because. You're right, we will inevitably be called to the table very last, right? And we will inevitably uh, uh, not have our voices early enough, but um, if we were to get started earlier and at least start becoming a little bit more political in response to some of these issues, that's how we can stop repelling uh, a more activated voice. Ron, can you join us? Ron's work is really visionary on things that we could be doing, or starts to pull at the threads of exposing some of the hypocrisies here. Do you want to jump in, or is there anything you'd like to say? We have a lot of microphones. And you can help. You can pull your chair. Sir, basically your chair up to the I mean, I apologize for being late, and I didn't want to interrupt the conversation because it was—it's, I think, a really productive and healthy conversation. Uh, my name is Ronald Rail. I'm the author of the book Border Walls Architecture and Professor UC Berkeley. So I, I think the conversation that's going on right now is really great. And it's, it's an enormously complex issue uh, for architects to be involved, in, I, involved with. I think fundamentally that there must be a way for architects to be involved with the border wall. I do not think that architects should design the border wall, but I do think that it's an enormous opportunity one, to think about what happens in those landscapes now that a wall exists, and what do we do as architects in those landscapes? How do we stitch together urban fabrics? How do we connect ecological uh, networks and migratory paths? How do we think about life safety issues as architects? These are all design opportunities that architects can work on, so I challenge architects to take on these challenges, not in the easy money of designing walls, but in the hard, difficult challenges of making the borderlands a very productive and safe space. For me, there is no more important place in the United States than the borderlands to think about issues of energy infrastructure, to think about uh, water infrastructure, because this is a, a landscape very much in need of clean water and access to water. And also, I think that one could Architects could be empowered to lead a future of immigration reform through design. Yeah, I also think that maybe a big problem is that in our education um, or in the current education that exists in the states, um, the the fact that architecture and politics are heavily tied together is not something that is uh, talked about enough. Um, and I think that some architects that have been engaging uh, the wall and all that they uh, they claim. Uh, 
that that's not something that maybe they they thought about or so I think that maybe they that importance is not is not stressed enough in in our education as well um, where if we were told from the very beginning that you can say no, you have to understand where your projects come from, that, that when you play in this system you will be part of a bigger thing rather than just building a building, um, and things like this. I think that maybe problems like this could be, uh, could be solved, because if we were told that, then maybe we would be at a point where nobody would want to be engaged with the wall, or, or the ones who would be engaged could be proposing something completely different than a wall. Um, but the problem is that right now there are people willing to do that and claiming that, well, we don't quite know, etc. We don't, we don't understand this. So um, I think that that is also uh, a big problem. In in architectural education, what we stress is life safety issues, right? Um, egress, fire egress. This is all about saving lives. So why wouldn't we? push this into our engagement to the wall. We think about the ecological use of materials. Uh, why wouldn't we think about this? Because the, the wall uses a piece of uh, structural steel every four inches for 700 miles. You know, why wouldn't we consider these as uh, challenges to take on in the future? The, the, the current wall is estimated to cost $90 billion. And I would like to ask what could, what else could we do with this money? Uh, for example, we could create uh, social infrastructures, we could create wastewater treatment plants, photovoltaic farms, we could make schools and public parks. Uh, I think this is absolutely necessary, and I think all of those kinds of programs are much more important to developing a, a kind of better America, but, but also, in regards to immigration reform, a, a better Mexico as well. to do this, but I have an important job, which is to ask you all to be seated. Um, I'm going to bring another, Ron, you should stay right where you are, um, uh, and, and ask another panel to, uh, to come up, and then everyone's going to join together at the very end. So if you've got those burning questions, you'll have a, a group of uh, a dozen people to come up questions as you can it. So could our second panel on labor and construction come forth? But let's give this group Thank you. 
training, but also to understand our rights and all workers' rights to fulfilling, self-empowering, sustainable, and mutually supportive organizational frameworks. If we understand work as both a right of proper subjectivity and fundamental framework for managing a healthy future for humanity, the idea of an undocumented worker makes no sense. It is not so long. Yeah, my name is uh, Kiefer Dunn. I'm the current national organizer for the Architectural Lobby. Um, I also have a practice called Pigeon Studio. I'm a lecturer at SAIC, and I host a radio show about left politics and architecture called Buildings on Air. Um, and here's, here's my statement. Uh, <laughs> this morning, I asked Peggy um, what she thought she wanted to kind of get from, from this discussion. She said that she wanted to debate activism, um, not whether we should do activism, but sort of what modes, practices, um, uh, our, our activism should take um, and, and have. Uh, and I have clear sort of principles uh, in regard to questions of activism. The first principle is that good activism helps the oppressed build political and economic power and helps workers realize the economic power they already have as a collective. The second principle is that the long-term goal of a left politic should be nothing short of full democratic control of the economy by the people, um, regardless of their origin. Uh, and, and those principles are clear, but how you enact them is, is sort of anything but clear. And so, uh, but, but I still have an idea about that. And I was trying to figure out how to communicate that, and I was looking for this metaphor, and I'm, you know, walking through the streets of Venice, and then I, it hit me. And uh, I realized, uh, follow me on this metaphor, uh, that the Giardini is uh, full democratic control of the means of production. <laughs> and we're all leaving our hotel, and we know which direction that is, but we have no idea how to get there. <laughs> uh, we don't have a map, and, but, and, and we know that we're going to have many dead ends and wrong turns and pauses, um, but as long as we're walking, and in this metaphor, walking is building collective power, um, then, and we know the direction, then eventually we'll get there. We'll land in the promised land of the Giardini. Uh, but if we don't walk, and we content ourselves to just worry about the next turn or try to find a road that'll get us straight to our destination, uh, we'll just end up stuck in a compo, maybe getting drunk on spritz if we can afford it, which will be a lot of fun for us, but the stakes are so much higher. They're people's <coughs> lives and livelihoods and ending a system that's premised on intense violence. Hi, my name is Manuel Schwarzberg. I'm the coordinator of research for the architecture lobby. I'm a PhD candidate at Columbia. Um, so I think it's really important to name the enemy. Uh, the enemy is capitalism and imperialism. Uh, we can't understand those two things uh, uh, apart from each other. Um, and uh, we have to understand that together they form an infrastructure of extraction and racialization. And those two processes are always recursively combined, right? Um, we've been brainwashed not to see that connection really in a bad way. And unfortunately, architectural professionalism is one of the ways in which we've been brainwashed not to see that connection. Um, this is a global system. It was in place already in the 18th and 19th century. Um, since the post-war period, uh, Second World War period, it's been ruled by the United States uh, through very particular institutions like the IMF and the World Bank and the UN. And um, uh, what it does is it creates this uh, framework in which uh, global capital is free and everybody else is trying to catch up. Um, it, what it also does through that system is 
because it has a, a, a racialized component, it uh, privileges certain parts of the world, um, which really helps it because it can then reproduce a labor force really, really cheaply. And the line that divides those things is racialized, right? So the, the origin to the migration crisis is imperialism and capitalism. And it's mediated by these uh, so-called global institutions. We have to really, really recognize that. Uh, that it, that's not how it should be. Uh, in architecture, we've been brainwashed not to see alternatives because we've bought into the narrative of capital, which is that we're all chasing for the next technological innovation that will bring us the capital. Instead of realizing that uh, life is not necessarily about technological innovation, life is about life. And so how do we, uh, the main thing we need to do is try to build institutions that would uh, stand outside of that system, stand outside of this constant imperative, this constant injunction to follow this uh, 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 thing that we'll never catch, right? And that constantly reproduces these racialized pools of laborers uh, and constantly reproduces quality and constantly exacerbates these uh, uh, refugee crises that we currently have. Just to put it in perspective, the amazing virtues and miracles of technolo technological innovation currently mean that last year in Europe there was a one trillion dollar global savings, uh, European savings glut, yeah? Corporate, private corporations are stashing a trillion dollars last year that they're not investing. Yeah, this is the root of the problem. We don't have global institutions that would put that money to work, that would basically, uh, 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 diffuse the inequality in the refugee crisis. That's what we need. We need to build those institutions. For architecture, that means, in a sense, refusing our professionalism. Because the professional institutions we have are intimately bound to both the managerialization of spatial development, which basically uh, uh, creates this horizon in which we become different from uh, builders and different from construction workers. Uh, uh, that uh, elevation is also racialized. There's a whiteness to that elevation. Um, and so we need institutions that would uh, be outside of the frame of the nation state, but would also um, undermine the disciplinary boundaries that reproduce that privilege, right, of managerialization. And that does mean seeing ourselves as workers, seeing ourselves, seeing the privilege that we have, seeing the way that we reproduce this whiteness, and uh, uh, reimagining what an institution that is not like the AIA, uh, what does that mean? It means uh, seeing life and seeing how we can work together and how we can cooperate and how we can undermine these uh, systems of extraction and racialization. Yeah. Um, hi, so I'm Kadam Bakshi. I'm an architect. I teach at Barnard College. Uh, and I'm also co a co-founder of Who Builds Your Architecture with Mabel Wilson. And uh, lastly, I'm a co-author of a book uh, called Multinational City uh, with Reinhold Martin. So uh, at Who Builds Your Architecture... Sorry, let me start that again. So Who Builds Your Architecture is an advocacy group that Mabel and I co-founded, and we've been working with the architecture lobby for the last five or six years. Um, so our rem uh, remarks uh, for responding to the prompts for discussion today will be on how to promote fair, la fair labor in architecture and in related design and construction networks. We've selected a sh few short-term and long-term points Um, I'll outline some short-term uh, points and Mabel will expand on long-term possibilities. Uh, before I mention four points, I also want to emphasize that by short-term, I also mean 
that this is something that can be done fairly easily if we were seriously concerned about problematic labor practices in architecture. So, number one, expand site, site observation. Broaden scope of site observations by architects to include detection and reporting on poor labor practices. Boycott contractors or subcontractors using abusive labor practices. Determine where abusive practices occur and refuse to work with contractors who mistreat construction workers. Number two, employ human rights uh, and social services experts as consultants and architectural project teams. The, team for global the teams for global architectural projects, especially where architects, engineers, consultants, construct construction firms are from different parts of the world, the teams should include regional experts that can advise on local human rights and labor reforms. Number three, give credit to all workers. Find ways to acknowledge all who contribute to architectural projects. Number four, and this already came up in the panel before, refuse commissions that might lead to unfair and exploitative um, labor practices. Publicize commitment and educate your clients and yourselves and the public on human rights standards through activism. Advocate with architectural manifestos, charters, pledges, missions, etc. And so I'm going to follow up with the long-term ones. Uh, one is to think about how we deploy architectural documents as toolkits and use architectural drawings uh, and documents uh, as a vehicle to raise labor standards and improve construction practices. Realign new technologies and rethink supply chains, and that's why we think these are long-term, because they're more expansive beyond the everyday, um, which means that architects uh, should use new technologies for linking design, construction, and, and supply chains. Um, make new diagrams of linkages and power relations amongst all actors. Right now, there's always a firewall between the architect and the client, the client and the contractor, but that diagram can actually be re reconfigured. Um, expand our code of ethics, right? And this, I think, will go to the question of, of the oath, and we're going to talk about that a little bit, but also to recognize that equality is sustainability and that the environmental aspects of architecture should remember that environmental sustainability also requires economic um, equality, and I just wanted to read something, um, and this is something that inspired us, and it was actually by Anne Liu, who is here somewhere. Uh, this is very early on, and she wrote uh, in 2011, workers' rights and safety should be a pivotal point for any sustainability discussion. The environment is not just the air, the ground, the water, but the people with whom we work and live. Thank you. Hi, I'm Ashton. My name is, or, um, I work at UXO and I'm also Secretary of the Architecture Law. And um, in the current traditional contract of the design bid build in the United States, architects are liable for impacting or are liable for impacting the job site working conditions and impacting the hiring practices of subcontractors. I propose that small firms modify contract structure to integrate a project delivery where the contract would stipulate the conditions for fair labor practices amongst all parties. Larger firms should work with groups like Google Zero Architecture and local organizations that support and protect undocumented workers to understand the extent of exploration and refuse to work with firms with exploitative practices. So, uh, in the United States, uh, we have labor unions for uh, people in the trades, what we call so builders, carpenters, electricians, laborers. Uh, we don't really have an architect's union. Uh, now, uh, other nations around the world do have such a union. 
what do you each think about creating such a union? What would that look like? Uh, what would be some of the principles of, of such a union? Um, yesterday I spoke with um, the CEO of, this, of the Swedish version of the AIA, the Swedish Architects um, Society. Um, their, uh, their corresponding our professional organization is a union. Um, and that union not only represents employees, it represents employers. Um, clearly they have a relationship with the state that's different than ours, but there's an understanding that their union is the place where they will collect dues, um, uh, 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 that allow for pension funds to be created, allow for unemployment insurance to happen, allow for the benefits, benefits to create the rules for um, labor hours, to give family folk nine months <laughs> at 8% pay. That is what their architectural organization, which again is a union about. They go on and on about the value of collective bargaining. And collective bargaining that doesn't pit against employers, against employees, but actually advocates within society for the value of architecture in a monetary situation as well as a improved growth environment situation. Uh, yeah, we don't we don't have many unions in America, not just <laughs> many architecture unions. Um, I think uh, overall in the private sector, the percentage of the unionized workforce is in the single digits, um, which is really tragic for a lot of reasons. I mean, a union is not automatically progressive, um, but but what it does do is create a, a kind of real economic leverage for a body of workers that they only have as a kind of body, right? And so I think uh, a union of architects gives us the kind of leverage to do a lot of the things that we we're talking about that seem very ambitious in the first panel. But when, when you imagine a, a kind of mass strike of architects, um, all of these things kind of uh, bring everything into focus and give you a real power to affect change. Obviously, we're a long way from that, but I don't think we're as far from it as we think. Um, and so I, I think as long as you have that kind of collective uh, uh, body, you can, you can work on it to, to go on solidarity strikes and build that kind of power. And uh, the real key thing is seeing uh, uh, the fact that you have more in common as an architect, uh, as a worker, uh, with other workers than you do with the people who are kind of at the head of these systems of global finance and uh, uh, negative geopolitics. There's more in that we have in common, and when we have uh, uh, bodies that allow us to realize that, um, then we do get the kind of social justice bent to our unionism that, that we really want, along with the power. Um, I'll just say a quick thing. I think regarding the unions, which is a really complex issue, um, especially if you think about both, uh, you know, the questions of borders, national, international, when you think about the global context, you know, it becomes fairly complex. That isn't to say that unions don't work, but I think if I, I think how would the union be framed? You know, is it the disciplinary boundary? Is it the professional boundary? Is it the, what? What is the underlying structure of the union? I think that's a really important discussion to have. I mentioned in our last discussion in the Weidman, you know, Weidman Plaza that we, you know, we, we of course we all agree we're all workers, but we have to have bring up the question of inequality. We are not all equal workers. And until we start coming up with frames and structures that fundamentally address the question of inequality, you know, I think unions as exist, you know, is is something that maybe can be built upon, but perhaps with a lot of change uh, of kind of questioning the underlying structures of the unions. 
Yeah, I mean, I, um, I'm Mabel Wilson, by the way, and I teach at Columbia University, co-founder of Google Jar, which I totally forgot to say that. And I'm also the associate director of the Institute for Research in African-American Studies, which I also have to say publicly. Um, but I do think the question, you know, because I think when you enter into capitalism, which is Manuel's point, is that you sell your, your labor. You're a wage laborer. And typically, I think within architects, we see ourselves as bohemians and artists. And we don't see and value our labor in the same way. Um, but there are other groups within the arts, like musicians, for example, who are organized and who make sure that they're, you know, in terms of the amount of time they work, in terms of the amount of, 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 of money that they get, it's very clear because they see themselves collectively, not as individuals selling individual labor on the market, but when you, when you become a union, a collectivity, then you can see more transparency and actually can raise the, the labor. That's why labor unions are diminishing, because they want to diminish wages. I mean, that's, that's, yeah. that's yeah. true. Uh, yeah, I think that one thing that uh, is uh, important to say is that, I, that the question of the boundary of the union has also historically been uh, a site of uh, a reproduction of racial privilege, certainly in the U.S., for example. But uh, that's not a kind of, uh, uh, let's say, general thing, right? Like there have been instances where the opposite has happened. In fact, the fact that workers were had a place and, a, and an institution that allowed them to organize meant that there was a lot of solidarities constructed. And so um, I think that have, keeping in mind the question of the boundary is really important, but especially uh, uh, realizing that we just need institutions, you know, uh, whether we call them unions or not. I think the union is a form that we need to uh, try to reappropriate and reinvent in a sense. Uh, and alongside that, we need to think about uh, how we can represent uh, the social in a way that is determined by us as a democratic uh, citizenship, if you like, and not by capital. Uh, and so other forms that the lobby, for example, is exploring, as well as unionization, are cooperative structures. Um, and so we have one of the research projects we have going on right now is uh, about socializing small firms and how we might build a platform that would link different cooperatives uh, and how that might itself link to cooperatives in the construction sector or in the development sector or in planning. Uh, so just taking that one step of acknowledging that we need institutions, for me that's a massive thing, you know? <laughs> So one of the great challenges now um, is uh, workers uh, moving transnationally uh, to work on major capital projects. We've all heard uh, terrible stories of uh, worker abuses um, and individual architects saying, hey, not my problem. Like, that's not my thing. I, you know, I just designed the buildings. It's up to somebody else to actually uh, build the buildings. Um, I'm wondering if you could each comment about that and uh, presuming that you don't think that that's perhaps the best way that architects should be engaged. How do architects engage, or how can they engage in a better understanding uh, in observation of practices which are um, not fair to workers? And how do you begin to have those conversations with uh, builders, contractors, and others? feel like I should be handing this right to Kanavari and, and Mabel, but I, I just have to say, because I have the privilege of being right next to you and getting the, the mic, that um, the reason that we have no legal obligation now and can exempt ourselves is because we have no contract with, with the construction workers. As everybody knows, there's a contract between the owner and the architect, and there's a contract between the owner and the construction and the, and the, and the contractors. There's no framework, there's no contract, there's no relationship that we have with the construction workers. 
We need to come up with contracts where we do have a relationship such that it's not just social cachet or um, influence that happens, you know, at, at the star architect level to say maybe not or whatever, I'll refuse this project, that there is a contractual relationship we have so that we have the pull um, to, to actually enter into that discussion. Yeah, I mean, I think in our case, um, we were inspired by the Gulf labor protest of the Guggenheim in Abu Dhabi. That's what Kanambari and I got started with. But we realized that architects had a different relationship than artists did with, with building. Um, but it raised a series of questions about exactly that firewall, how do we address it? Um, and, and one of the things that became uh, evident early on is that with protests, let's say, around iPhone and Foxconn and Apple, was that we carry these things with us. Buildings typically don't move. But labor pools move to where building sites are, and that's happened always historically. So how do we understand? And, and what we tried to do was to make visible those things and have public forum, and that's where Peggy came in. And Peggy on that kept saying, well, how are architects going to even understand best labor practices on job sites abroad when they have labor practice problems you know, in their own offices, which is where the lobby actually comes from. You know, and, and so, you know, just making this visible and having these conversations, and I think about that five years ago, and we didn't even have them inside there, right, four years ago. Um, like how much this has grown, the conversations expanded, more people are involved, and I feel like it's actually getting momentum so that we can sort of address these on multiple fronts, actually. And and it's very, very, very complex because globalization is complex. Well, uh, just to bring in the, the uh, to me, one uh, really paradoxical thing is uh, in American University, which, uh, I mean, I, I study at Columbia University, which is an Ivy League university, and it's a very kind of privileged uh, space. And it's kind of a paradoxical space because it's, in one sense, very internationalist. There's a lot of students from many, many other places. Uh, but then, it, it because it's part of this whole infrastructure of producing professionals, it ends up reproducing these uh, inequalities between workers, especially uh, the creation of a pool of managers, essentially. And so what would it mean to think this problem of transnational uh, solidarity uh, when even the institutions that literally produce subjectivity at the highest level, which are the universities in, in the country that is most powerful in the US, are basically bubbles, bubbles of reproduction of privilege. And, uh, and so I, I wonder what that means for architecture school. Uh, I don't have any solutions, but uh, for sure, uh, I think it, there needs to be a big revision of that. Yeah, and I, I don't know that, you know, we're, we were kind of talking about this a, a couple months ago between ourselves about the kind of differences between sort of Ivy League and elite uh, architecture schools and most architecture schools, uh, which have this big problem of, you know, students need to get jobs after they graduate, and uh, a lot of times they end up kind of taking whatever they can get, and so th there's this kind of, uh, which, which has all kinds of problematics attached to it, right, because then when you need to kind of pay your student bills and your student debt, then you kind of uh, uh, don't have the ability to make kind of ethical choices. So I think that's one way in which the kind of union helps um, when you kind of are able to win yourself breathing room through better wages, through more time off of work, you can start to do the kind of activism that it's going to take to win liberation for everyone. The other thing I think too, uh, you know, a, a, an, an example of um, 
a union fighting outside of their kind of purview of their workers, uh, SEIU in America, the Service Employees International Union, um, they have engaged in this giant campaign, Fight for 15. Um, it has all kinds of issues with it, and SEIU has all kinds of issues, but uh, they're not trying to, or it, it's a fight for a $15 minimum wage, and they're not trying to organize all the workers necessarily, they're trying to win that minimum wage because they understand when the, the, that their members are having to compete with workers who are earning minimum wage. So they're trying to raise the floor for everyone and understand that there's a common struggle there. And I think that even though it's kind of far-fetched because architects are immensely privileged compared to a lot of the people that build our buildings, I, I do really believe that we have more in common than we don't. And we can kind of recognize that when we win concessions from capital, for, it's to everyone's benefit except the capitalists. I think um, in practice, this is, this is really important to, um, and everything I'm going to say is already said, but you know, to really continue this conversation. And I think our role as architects is to be informed, right? I think we need to know what is happening on the job sites, the type of labor practices. And I think through having this conversation and continuing it, continuing it on a public forum like we are today and have been doing, I think we can really grow these you know, internal structures both within our profession and the construction industry to really like hone in on, on you know, gathering information for architects to be more and I would just say I wouldn't underestimate the publications that like Peggy spoke about. We did a critical field guide, and I've heard this is taught in professional practice classes. I know students who come up to me and say, "Oh my God, that is an amazing document," and you know. And so I think there are ways of impacting curriculum, and because that you know you start one thing and it, it essentially spreads. I mean that is the logic of organizing is to get people awake to these issues and active. I just wanted to build up on that and say that, you know, since the question of universities has come up and what roles education university can play, I think we should adopt the real estate mantra where they say location, location, location. We should say education, 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 because I don't think that stops once you graduate. And I think we definitely feel that for these issues of especially migrant construction workers in a lot of these relatively new cities that have just popped up in the last 10 years or you know, where architects are really involved in uh, uh, building these, designing these cities, that education doesn't stop. I mean, you know, you have to continually educate yourself. We have to educate ourselves about these human rights issues, you know, with, with talking to colleagues, as somebody said, in other, you know, kind of other disciplines, other experts. And I think, you know, any architecture practice or architects in general, we have, we have to, keep that point, we have to educate ourselves, we, as you said, inform ourselves, don't, you know, not think that we already know the places that we're going to build. So I think I, I would just like to adopt this mantra of education, education, education. <laughs> okay, so um, now I'm gonna ask the first, sorry, I'm gonna ask the first panel to come join us. If you're, you can bring a chair or stand, whatever, whatever you're comfortable with. Um, and uh, we will, um, I will give a, a, a short provocation, and then we'll open it up to questions. Grab a chair. Yeah.
So, uh, as the lone non-architect of this esteemed group of people, um, and the only philosopher among them, uh, I gave this group a provocation, uh, that, something that I've been thinking about for a long time. All of my experience has been working with architects at the American School of Architects, and now as a consultant to designers. Um, I have always wondered why there hasn't been a code of ethics or um, a, a, um, a pledge, if you will, that architects take uh, in the same way that in the United States and Australia and, and many other countries, um, doctors take a pledge uh, to do no harm. Lawyers in the United States take a pledge to uphold the Constitution. Um, architects' uh, role is um, drawn largely in legislation um, to protect the health, safety, and welfare of people uh, through building buildings which don't fall down, and that's a really good thing. Thank you all so much. Uh, but but why, how, how does an architect choose what to do and what not to do? Um, and it was always something that I, I couldn't quite understand. Uh, people would uh, tell me all the time that architects can build everything, and, and I would always wonder, well, just because you can, should you? And, and, and is that really an honorable thing to do? And so um, a, a group of architects in the United States called Architects, Designers, Planners for Social Responsibility um, asked for a boycott for architects not to design um, essentially solitary confinement chambers in prisons. Um, those have been uh, declared by the United Nations to be, in, uh, to be places of, of human torture, but yet they're still built and they're still designed architects in the United States. And so I, I, um, I got involved with that group and I, I was just so curious about how do, you, how do you begin to start drawing lines in a profession which uh, builds itself as a, as a profession which can and it can do anything. Should you really be a profession that does anything? And so I gave this provocation to this esteemed group and I'm going to give them a few minutes to respond and then I'd like, it, uh, like to open it up to your questions and potentially a few. Uh, for this idea. So. Um, I think that it's a really good question, but um, something that I'm really concerned about is then, I mean, and not to say that I'm against doing something like that, I think that it would be a really good thing to do, but something that worries me is where do you then draw the line and how much uh, what is okay, what is not okay. But sometimes that line is really, really thin. Um, so that is something that worries me because then um, can, can you build with materials that are not recyclable? Can you, so, I mean, I think that architecture is so embedded in capitalism that if you, if you try to go back, 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 there might be a time where it's like, I can't do anything. So I think that there should also be a will on each of us to decide where our limits are. Um, so I, I, I think that having some sort of rules like that would be beneficial, but, but not something where the rules tell you exactly what is it that you can and cannot do. Yes, I think it's a, it's a tricky question, especially because we must recognize the reality that if we do not do it, someone else will. Right? We run into this situation every day in our profession. Um, you know. Uh, it's actually very difficult to be able to fight and argue for a specific design. So I think that just taking ourselves out of the equation entirely, starting in terms of different typologies or um, stakes and politics, <coughs> is, is perhaps um, too far. And in fact, we need to be generating discussions about how these can happen or how they can be adjusted um, based on a 
games that are really intelligent research developed and not just um, given over to someone else that says, fine, you need a, a detention chamber? You got it. Um, I'll be quick. When you ask how, I think how we should do it democratically, collectively, make these decisions as a society. Um, I think um, on the, we do have, a, the AIA has a code of ethics, it just has no legal backbone. In fact, what Manuel was talking about, the institutions, those institutions are in service of capital, and that limits our ability to have change. Um, I too was skeptic of the code of ethics, um, and partly because the um, the Justice Department and the FDA has used the code of ethics as um, a excuse to come after us because they see those code of ethics as a form of collusion um, that um, excludes uh, competition. Um, so uh, I I worry about how ethics with bite would actually then be um, seen as a political threat and have people come out of an ethics without bite, let's just say we care for the health, health welfare, and future of the built environment, something like that, which we all would subscribe to, um, um, it really is an ethical statement, but means that every practice, every person will come down to their own individual interpretation of what that does. So um, I, um, I don't think it's necessarily the place to redirect our expertise. I mean, yeah, I think the reason why architecture's never had a kind of Hippocratic oath is because doctors materially benefit by doing no harm, right? Because then it shows that they're a good doctor. And architects have historically materially benefited from doing harm, right? I mean, and, and, and serving the elite, right? Like, let's make no bones about this. And so I think that uh, one of the reasons why we're having this conversation is not just because of the good work of the architecture lobby, but because uh, of the proletarianization of architectural work. That, and, and in that context, a proletarian ethic is emerging that is one of intense solidarity and love, because it has to be. Right? And, and so I think that when we talk about a lot of these labor issues and how we get power for ourselves, um, sometimes it can seem kind of like retrograde, like we need to go back to the idea of a gentlemanly profession. Um, but I think that, that that's precisely the wrong thing to do, right? Because this, this new kind of way of thinking and, and this new kind of class position, uh, it, it brings with it immense misery, but also like new opportunities for struggle and uh, uh, new modes of fighting and new modes of agency um, that I think we'll, we'll, we, we need to have. Yeah, I think to uh, touch on an earlier point about the uh, why we take on work that is sometimes undesirable or ethically dubious. Um, you know, we work under capitalism, so there's a profit motive, and sometimes if you don't take work, you will have no more work. You will have uh, you'll no longer be an architect. And so I think that it's important, as was mentioned in the previous discussion, to have democratic organizations like unions and cooperatives that can insulate us from that profit motive and then maybe allow us to exercise uh, choice in what projects we take and take an ethical stance that uh, doesn't endanger our livelihoods. What, what I think is challenging about thinking about what a Hippocratic Oath might look like is that one, ethics are always evolving, and they evolve through conversations just like this. And also, architecture has always been built on the backs of exploited labor, historically, in, in 
the work that we see probably in the Vietnam of the day, was everyone paid at least minimum wage to do this work? Probably not. Um, so, so what's radical about this is how can architecture exist if everyone has to be paid? And we also have to recognize that in, if we bring this back to the, the wall and, and labor, for example, the Mexican-American War was seen as a way of extending slavery, a way of exploiting labor further. And whether or not the Emancipation Proclamation worked, it certainly didn't address the Southwest as it did the South. And so I think we have to recognize that architecture and its labor is not only an ethical issue, it's bigger than that, it's a civil rights issue. And we should, if there is something that I would pledge to is, is we must pay our workers. for example, it's it's heavily unionized, like all cinematographers, I mean, you know, and they all, you know, whether it's people who are driving the trucks, I mean, they all, and they all get credit as yeah. they don't, right? Yeah. And so that's, you know, kind of one model, you know, that we, we might think about. And, and people regularly pay, you know, they pay it, you know, and it's been inflated and more inflated, and clearly there are inherent problems within that system, obviously, but nonetheless, I mean, I do think there's a sense that people go in it to get, to get paid. I just wanted to add, again, it does go back to the union, unionization question, but, you know, I do think, you know, ethics at an individual level is different, and I think we need to recognize that. I think what is a collective ethic is a separate question, you know. So, I, I mean, you could say, potentially, architects are usually progressive, you know, they believe in fair trade coffee. It's easy for us to pay 50 cents more to buy fair trade coffee. And we think, you know, that's an ethics stand we are taking. Uh, but I think as a collective, what we do as a profession, you know, we don't think we have anything to do with the migrant construction worker. Like, you know, that's, again, it's... So I think, for me, if we are thinking about it, or I don't know, the question is really, how do you take out the individual or kind of an ethic that's really connected to an individual, and it's not the collective. And that's something that you're bringing up as the kind of institutional or other kind of frameworks where it's not the individual is not that's kind of driving. Um, I really, really agree with that. And I think that uh, for me, uh, we for, before we can sign that oath, we all disavow the implicit oath we took when we entered architecture school. I'm pretty sure, I mean, maybe not, but when I started architecture school, the oath was, uh, you know, to basically become some kind of architectural superstar or something like that, individually. And, you know, the, the kind of whole structure of desire around the, the profession was built around these figures. And that's what I did. I graduated, and then I went to work for a first architect. And, and it was only uh, when um, that whole structure collapsed in a really personal way for me because of a financial crash that I started to uh, really consider, well, what's the structural connection between these things, right? And uh, so, yeah, how do you, instead of just signing that piece of paper, how do you change, you know, the educational system and the institutions we have so that they, they do acknowledge that the fact that architecture is a collective uh, social process? I mean, uh, just getting there is, seems like a important Question. You're gonna have to 
stand and holler, and I'll repeat after you. Yeah, so I want to talk a little bit more about labor, because I like the idea of labor, um, or our, our labor as the grand equalizer. Oh, oh sorry. Yeah. Thank you. So I want to talk a little bit more about, I want to hear your thoughts about labor. I like the idea of labor as a grand equalizer, but um, let's just suspend disbelief for a second and say that you don't have loans to pay because of a architecture school. Um, then why are your eight hours any more valuable than the migrant workers' eight hours, or for the matter, the bosses' eight hours? And I mean, I, what I'm trying to drive at is that this has been done before. The idea that everybody's labor is equal then, and how do we begin to value it? Um, if we if we want to get really into this, like if we want to follow this idea through all the way to the end, why are we? What are we fighting for exactly? Why do we want to be making more money than we're making now? We're making more than minimum wage, most of us. The vast majority, but like a lot of architects are making more than minimum wage. Why are we fighting for more? I'll just quote something really quick. The, um, the United Way just came out that uh, only 15 to 70% of United States citizens are below the official poverty line, but 40% of American households are having trouble meeting rent, food, and education for their families and the cell phone. I think they included communication there. So these sort of like basic human needs, even those who aren't considered below the official poverty line in the United States, people are having a harder and harder time meeting. So that's a reason for more. As as everyone as a whole, and I think back to the to the people's labor being valued, I think there's a lot more workers than there are bosses. And so even if everyone's equal, then the profits though are only going to the top right now. And I think that's the, the essential idea behind when we're talking about that equal distribution and redistribution. Yeah, and, and I don't think it's just uh, about more wages necessarily. I think it's about like having uh, like more healthcare, right? So I'm not spending all my sick days, uh, 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 you know. Well, yeah, you we need universal healthcare, right? I mean, geez, but like we need that so we can have healthy bodies to kind of do the activist work that we need to do. We need higher wages so we can support the kind of causes that we want to support. We need more time off of work so we can do the, uh, the kind of activism that we need to do and spend more time talking to the communities that we need to hear from and all of these different things. So uh, concretely, I think that's why, and I, I think um, uh, in, in the immediate term, I, I think it's, it's a really practical issue, actually. I think that one thing uh, to remember is that I'm not sure if it's entirely all about uh, getting higher wages. I think I think part of the problem, or the, maybe the initial problem, is all getting um, you know a same equalized sense of pay. There's a lot of pay gender uh, gender pay gaps in at firms. There's a lot of uh, pay gaps based off racial you know uh, affiliations and so forth. And I think you know so for for instance um, you know. When I first started, when I first graduated from my undergraduate degree, um, it was actually, you know, very precarious because trying to go out find a job, I'd actually never held um, a complete internship. And part of the reason why I did not hold, hold a complete internship is because I happened to uh, try to enter a workforce um, directly across from a school of architecture in Mexico that was producing students and therefore also producing students. Uh, that were more than willing to work underneath minimum wage, um, you know, but just to have a chance to uh, work. And so, a lot of times, what we found is a lot of uh, architecture students, that might, like myself, who I graduated with, basically uh, going into a bidding war. Like I am more than willing to work for 50 bucks a day to get an internship, just to get experience, just to get into um, 
you know, a position to have a, an actual job. So I think part of the, the, the initial challenge is at least to start talking about um, equalizing pay across gender, across race, across um, all, you know, the different levels. Um. I just want to say how much I appreciate the question because I think it's I think it's important. It's kind of like we are not like um, unskilled labor that um, is really struggling with minimum wage. We, we're, we're privileged in that sense. So I think it's a really vital question. I, I do think that it's not a question of wages or or money. I think it's a question of power. Um, and I think we're um, probably the least empowered discipline that there is. Um, and we're least empowered because. Everyone thinks that our main concern is, <laughs> as my sister has put it, um, we really care about round windows versus square windows. That, that's what the purview of architecture is. As long as that is how we're conceiving ourselves and we do it too much, but as long as the public is, is conceiving it that way, we have zero power. But I also think about the fact that all of us are educated around larger social, political, um, ecological conditions. Um, that is what our education does. And when we get out into the field, what we're asked to do is make pretty buildings, if we're lucky, if we have some rich friends who can have us be the like, beginning and end of the story. So all the things that we're arguing for don't have to do with the money. They have to do with being at the table, decision making, when projects are built and how they're built. Yes. I think that, you know, our, and 
Peggy mentioned earlier, architects are good at thinking about not what it is, but also what it could be. <laughs> you know, how do we imagine other situations? And, and going back to the earlier question about wages, I think this fundamental notion that time is money is a construct. And we and it's not all if you look at other cultures and other countries where you know this is not always the way the wages or even value is is defined. So there's kind of things that I think we need to study, we need to we need to draw, we need the other kind of systems we need to imagine. And you know, I'll just go, I mean what, uh, you know, so I, I'm not a historian, but I'd love for an architecture historian to take this question about time as money and how it has filtered through architecture and you know, even this or minimum wage. You know, there, there have been other ways to um, to evaluate value. Going off of that, uh, one uh, example would be, for example, the uh, transformation of uh, housework and, and social reproduction work from an unpaid, basically expropriated form of labor that was not even considered labor to suddenly a, a real uh, 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 one of the mechanisms in which more value, capital value, is created and expropriated through the wage. And, uh, and it continues to be in pain, etc. So, but then there's, uh, you know, uh, socialist uh, theories uh, around uh, how you might revalue or value uh, economies of care and systems of cooperation that are already happening, but are just not paid. And so, w what we need for that is not just a kind of mental, cultural, you know, necessary mental, cultural, anthropological re-evaluation, but also institutions that would enforce that change, right? Um, and so I don't think you need uh, you need to be uh, already outside of capitalism. I think I think that doing that, trying that, is already the road. Yeah, yeah I agree. Uh, you know, I, I like I, I'm a reader of uh, of uh, Marx's Labor Theory of Value, right? Um, obviously, and uh, if you don't want to read Capital, there's a great pamphlet called uh, Value, Price, and Profit that's like 40 pages of the labor theory of value condensed. I highly recommend it. But like, you know, it, the, the argument is that everyone's hour of work is exactly the same as you're describing, and that includes, I think, a lot of this care work and, and uh, work of reproducing labor. Uh, but I, I think that maybe your, your question is about how, I think in the architecture lobby, we do have a kind of slippery usage of value as both our literal economic value as workers, but also the kind of values that we hold dear and like have as people um, and want to see embodied in the world. And so even though it's kind of slippery and, and maybe kind of uh, imprecise in academic terms, I mean, I think that there's a relation between sort of liberatory struggles and how we think about economics that for me makes it, I, I, I'm, I'm content with it to be a little bit messy when we use those things, yeah. Okay, so um, I'd like to thank you all for being an amazingly patient audience. Um, I'm going to ask Peggy Beaver to tell you just a little bit more about Architects Lobby. It will conclude, and I think most of the panelists will be here if you'd like to talk with any of them individually. So Peggy, last word. Thank you very much. Um, 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 I just want to make sure that everybody here has gotten one of our pamphlets. Um, they were passed out originally, but I think maybe the audience has changed, and I think that we have them... Um, back there with, with Matthew. So take that and that will give you information about the architecture lobby. Um, you can go to our website, um, architecture-lobby.org. Um, you can become a member. A member membership is really how we sustain ourselves and do our work. Um, there's a various campaigns, it's a various research. It is how we're able to talk in this way to all of you and to each other. It's very important. So 
um, support our work. And again, I want to thank um, the, the curators who have given this platform. I think they're they're a part of what this work means. It's um, anybody you remember or not. Um, the conversations that, that we bring up spread to other organizations, and that collaboration in and of itself um, is part of what you're seeing today. So thank you. Thank you, everyone. All of Architecture Lobby uh, for this incredibly provocative conversation. Please stick around. Uh, some of the themes that you actually have brought up here, actually, around sort of the jobs and automation actually are probably going to be picked up in the next panel, uh, which is called Robot Citizens, and we'll be gathering back here at 3 o'clock um, for taking these ideas into a totally different realm. So um, thank you again, and I'll see you at 3.